Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Faith That Works Today, in the book of James, with a message entitled, Marks of Living and Dead Faith. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 15 to 26, as we join Dr. John now. Years ago, there was a popular reality-based television program called Pawn Stars. It featured the owner of a pawn store in Las Vegas, Nevada, along with his father, his son, and another store employee. The show was quite popular for a while, and it convinced me that if I ever needed to sell something, I'd never sell it in a pawn store. But that's just me, and I'm making no statement about whether you should utilize a pawn store or not. And furthermore, might I say, Back to the Bible Canada neither endorses nor officially has a position regarding pawn stores. (laughs) Nonetheless, during that show frequently, people would come in and in order to sell either a rare painting or a rare gun or a rare book or a famous signature on a document or a supposed one-of-a-kind something, the pawn shop would call in an expert whose job it was to look over the item and then authenticate it. In essence, they said, you know, expert, tell me whether this thing is real or not. You know, and one of the ways the experts would do that is that they would have pictures or examples of the real item, and they would compare what they know is real to what's being presented to them. It was very interesting, but, but that's what James is doing in this book. He's looking at markers, and he's examining whether faith is real or false, or whether it's alive or dead. He is the expert that's called in, giving authentication to tell anyone who's interested in whether the faith that they have will save them. And how does he do that? Well, he does that by giving us four pictures, I call them case studies, which tell us whether our faith is the real thing. Here now is the first one. It's found in James 2, 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. One can almost imagine the scenario. Notice in this case, the person spoken of is a brother or a sister. So it's a fellow Christian. Since the Christian faith was still in its infancy when James wrote, one must imagine that this fellow Christian is a member of the same congregation. That is, they're not, in this case, living far away. They share the same fellowship with you, but they have needs, and you have the resources to meet them. And James is not telling us to give to the needy of the world, although the Bible does tell us that in other places. This, in James, is the test of someone that we know, someone who shares life with us, someone we see every week. And James' point is simple. If you only offer a prayer by itself and don't act, your prayer is hollow and meaningless. It won't help that person. I mean, can you imagine the scene? A a brother in your Bible study says, look, I have no food. So your group gathers around him and prays that God would open the windows of heaven and rain down food when it's within your power to fill his grocery bag right now to overflowing. I mean, think of how hollow that moment would be. That's the analogy. That says James is like the person who has faith but has no Christian virtues that go along with that. Lots of talk, no action. So the question is, can that faith save him? So let's look at this first bit of authenticating evidence. You know, I've said that James gives us four case studies. And the first is that of a needy fellow Christian in your congregation. Now, in truth, 
That's why most churches have a budget that allows the entire congregation to respond. You know, in my years of pastoring and now in the church that I attend, there's a monthly what we call a benevolent offering in order that the congregation has the means to minister to the poor. You know, in most cases, it's wise for church leadership to become involved, and they assess the level of need, and they provide emergency assistance and help the person find employment. I've seen more than one case where someone, either in the church itself or someone who knows someone, and soon the church bands together and the needy person is cared for in the immediate, but is also able to find employment. You know, if there's a problem such as not knowing how to control home finances, you know, I've seen churches providing someone with the basic needs of how to get a handle on their spending and on their daily finances. I mean, this is a very basic example of living faith, and it's done all the time. And so we might ask, you know, am I giving generously to this situation? But James' point, I think, is a good one. If your faith is only intellectual, or even if it's only experiential, and there are no works, things like humility, endurance, obedience, truthfulness, the things James is speaking about, if, you know, if that's missing, your faith is of a kind that will not save you in the final day. Okay, James is now ready to move to the second case study. This one is found in verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, this second case study now involves demons. It turns out, says James, that demons are orthodox. They believe that God is one. No doubt James has in mind the first formula for orthodox belief that every Jewish child would have learned. It's called the, the Shema. You know, the Hebrew word for Shema simply means to hear. This is the first word found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, from that basic theological formula, which all Jewish children would learn, flowed everything else. This one God created all things, and nothing existed that he did not create. And furthermore, this one God redeemed a people for himself. This one God loves and saves and rules and who calls us to love him. You know, James says it turns out even the demons believe all that stuff. They could go over the very best Christian confession of faith and, and tick off all the boxes as to whether they believe that as well. You know, in many churches, they'd even get membership because they believe what we believe. Now, examining this second case study leads James to some interesting conclusions. Look again at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You know, James is now engaged in an imaginary dialogue between himself and someone who disagrees with him. And as we've already seen, James has a habit of surprising us. You know, if I had written this, I would have put it the other way around. I, I would have written verse 18 in this way. But someone will say, you have works, I have faith, because uh, that way seems to make sense, at least in my mind. It makes sense because it seems from my reading of the thing, James has been arguing with the person who says he or she believes everything about the truths of the Christian faith, but doesn't seem to back it up with works of steadfastness and compassion and control of the tongue and so forth. You know, James has been saying that faith, that faith by itself will not save you. And so it would seem that James should have said, you say you have faith, but have no works. Is that authentic faith? 
But instead of saying it the way we might expect, James surprises us. The one that James now takes issue with seems to be saying, I have works in that I feed the poor and keep a rain on my tongue. And you, James, you have faith. And by the way, I know of people who are just like that. See, I know of Christian organizations that feed the poor and fight for social justice and give themselves for the marginalized, but essentially they become liberal. There's no doctrine behind them. They don't teach the gospel. They don't lead people to faith in Christ. They don't make sure they disciple people in the basics of the Christian faith. They don't teach the Bible. But they say we have works and in some fashion feel that works by themselves are enough. So in other words, the one arguing with James, who has just heard James teach us that faith has to be more than an internal experience, now responds by saying, okay, well, faith is not my forte, but James, I'm good because I hear you saying that works are important and and I've certainly got that. And it's that objection that James is taking on. You can't think of faith and works as two separate things, he says, for they never are. People who give themselves for the poor without a healthy, vibrant, and an orthodox Christian faith are no more to be admired than the easy believism people who never show the fruit of faith. Oh, I know. In the eyes of the world, it's not like that. You know, the wider world is greatly impressed by acts of charity that is unaccompanied by faith. But it turns out God isn't. And I would add that's because glorifying God and worshiping him as he is and finding enjoyment in the one true God and believing in his promises and taking him at his word. I mean, these things are our chief goals. We are made for God, not for feeding the poor. In eternity, there will be no poor, but there will still be the one true God. Of course, as we read James, we do see God's heart for the poor. But to claim that we have a heart for the poor when we don't believe the gospel, that is to deny God. That, says James, constitutes dead works. We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's Word is always the perfect Word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, We're making this resource available as a gift free during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free today. James carries on his debate in the last half of verse 18. He makes a demand on the person who has works only. Show me your faith, he demands. But the person says, look, I I don't have faith. And James responds, that's my point. You don't have faith and faith is what you need. James' comments are completely in line with what the writer of the Hebrews says, and that's in Hebrews 11, verse six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
James never doubts that the key to pleasing God, to getting your sins forgiven, to getting to heaven, is faith. A person needs faith, and, and with that, he comes to the case of the fearful demons. The point of this case is not that the demons believe but don't have works. Of course they have faith but no works, but that's not the point James is making. He already made that point in case study number one, the case of the needy fellow Christian to whom we must respond by caring for his needs. No, the point here in the second case study is simply this. If you ever think you can separate faith from works, you completely misunderstand what genuine faith looks like. And so James, in his second case study, the case study of the fearful demons, trembling over the thought of God, makes the point that faith and works go hand in hand and that true faith can never be separated from works. You know, I struggled with whether to say this, but, but I'm going to. You know, almost everyone knows of Mother Teresa and her incredible work among the poor in Calcutta. But it was only after her death that her diary was released. She had wanted her diary to be suppressed, for it was written for her benefit alone, and it was not made for the public. In her own words, she bemoaned the absence in the diary of Jesus in her life. I quote her own words. She said, Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. How painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. Repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. What do I labor for? If there be no God, there can be no soul. If there be no soul, then Jesus, you also are not true. Please don't hear me say that I know Mother Teresa's eternal destiny. I don't. And I would take exception to anyone who said they did. And furthermore, it has been argued that these words were merely her struggle for faith and that there should be no doubt about her trust in Christ. Again, I don't claim that I'm in the place that I can make that determination. But I raise this because it's worrisome that she claimed that this was her internal condition for the last 50 years of her life. And here's why I use this example, not to criticize her, nor to make eternal proclamations. I use this to say that it is possible that a lifetime of works works so great that they care for the dying in a city, and that these works go on for more than 50 years. It is possible that works can be devoid of faith and that all those works can become meaningless. Faith is essential. And James says, if you have works alone, you're no better than the plight of demons who have faith alone. Those two things can never be separated. Now to our third case study, and I'm reading James 2, 20 to 23. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Now, James' third case study comes to us from Genesis 22. That's the well-known story about Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. The story goes like this. You know, Abraham and his wife Sarah have been waiting for over 20 years to have a son. They're now past childbearing years, and God performs a miracle. But this is not an ordinary son. 
God has promised Abraham that through this son, he would bring salvation to the whole world. This was a special child. And then the boy grows and God comes back to Abraham and and tells him to sacrifice his son on the altar. And, And as we know, that is the very same place that eventually Jesus would be crucified on a cross. See, Abraham doesn't know that God is giving us a picture of of how he saves. I mean, all he knows at that point in time is that God commanded him to do something that seemed absurd. So Abraham takes the boy, climbs up Calvary's mountain, Mount Moriah, as it was then called, and he builds an altar. He is now just outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem on the very spot that Solomon will later build the temple. But in that time, there was no building there, and Jerusalem was a great deal smaller than it would later become. But before Abraham goes up the mountain to sacrifice his son, he tells his servant something significant. Listen, Genesis 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. See, the writer of Hebrews tells us plainly that Abraham had become convinced that when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, that day on the mountain that Abraham was convinced that God would raise him from the dead. He wasn't lying when he told his servants that both of them would come back together. And why? Well, the reason for that is that God had already promised Abraham that, that it was through Isaac that God would bless the world. God promised And Abraham had become so convinced that God kept his promises that he could obey even sacrificing his son. See, in short, the sacrifice of Isaac was a bold and brazen belief that God could be trusted even when it didn't make sense at the moment. That's that's the height of Abraham's faith. Now look again at James 2.22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So here's the question. How is Abraham's faith completed by sacrificing his son? Well, simply in this way. Had he not done so, he would have indicated that he didn't trust God at all. See, Abraham learned that when you trust God, it means that you radically obey him. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. How many of you know that all of the commands of God operate in exactly that fashion? God commands, forgive your enemies. Well, you'll have to trust him there, won't you? I mean, after all, what should happen if in forgiving your enemies, you forgo the opportunity to even the score and your enemies gain the advantage over you? No, no, you're going to have to trust God in this. Do good to those who persecute you. That's another command. Again, you're gonna have to trust God there. Give sacrificially, be humble. Don't be a self-promoter. You're gonna have to trust God there. Indeed, all the commands of God depend on faith. Faith is not only required to obey, but faith is also demonstrated in our obedience. It takes faith that God is not going to abandon us when we lay down our lives in service to Christ. See, until you do, until you obey, until you have works, you'll never learn to trust. That's precisely what Abraham learned. And until you trust God in a given area, If he doesn't come through for you, well, you're hooped. You'll never enter into genuine faith if you don't do that. Have you ever been bold in your faith, a faith that takes you into the wonderful world of works, a faith that actually does the will of Christ, and you're called upon to pay a price? Like the man who was told to be unethical in business, but he refused, for honesty in work was desired by God. And then it cost him his job, but Jesus had promised him that if he sought the kingdom first, then 
all other things would be added as well. So he simply believed and his faith was perfected. Now, one more case study. James 2.25 says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, this is the case of the prostitute of Jericho who hid the Jewish spies in her house, believing that her city had been condemned by God and believing that those spies represented her salvation. Rather than simply believing that, she put her life on the line by hiding them in her house and risking her life. After all, she must have thought, if what I believe is true, this whole city stands condemned. Why not risk my life? Because I might be saved. And with that, James comes to a conclusion. For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Where there is no action, there's never been faith. Both Paul and James agree on this same point. We are saved by faith. But I think Martin Luther said it very well. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with works, for that is how genuine faith demonstrates its reality. That's how we know our faith is living. John, this brings up so many interesting questions. And, and one of the questions I have is, is, is what is the evidence all about? What is it for? I mean, it can't possibly be for me determining whether you're saved or not. Uh, is, it, is it more about for your self-awareness than mine? Yes, yeah, such a great question because, Ben, as you and I both know, uh, there have been times in the past in church history uh, where people have just been overbearing and we've, you know, we've, we've said, okay, you're definitely not a Christian. So we, we make those value judgments over someone's internal spiritual life. So we're supposed to be very careful in that kind of stuff. But as 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 tells us that we are to test ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith. So what this really is, it's given for everyone whose heart is sensitive to say, you know, is there enough evidence within me that my faith is real, that my heart has been awakened to love God beyond all other things? I I think uh, it's a self-evaluation rather than a call to use this as this, you know, judgmental attitude that we begin to bear towards others. Thanks so much, John. And remember, join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.